police in Las Vegas found themselves in the middle of a UFO mystery last month after an... It was big eyes, they have big eyes. Mythical Legends Podcast with your host Daniel Barnett. Welcome everyone to the Mythical Legends Podcast. We're going to have another great evening uh, with some very, very exciting topics uh, that are going to come up in today's interview that I've never had on the podcast. But before uh, we go into who we have as a guest today, we have a brand new co-host who's, go- who's going to be hosting with us uh, for for the next few podcasts. Now, uh, this man is uh, a best friend of mine. Um, he's a Bigfoot researcher and in a team here called, called the UK BRT. Uh, we are both uh, co-founders. Um, so we're, we'll have a bit of chat, so I'm going to welcome Chris Alsford. Hey, hey buddy, yeah. how are you? I'm good, thanks, and you? I am very, I'm very, very well. So, um, Chris, we have an amazing guest, don't we, today? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, and we have some very, very good topics, don't we? It looks like we have a long list. I don't think we have enough time to touch on them. But <laughs> no, we don't. Let's do the best um, we can. Yeah, amazing. So, um, we have another amazing guest. Uh, adventurer and outdoorsman. Just in search for the unknown. Please wel- welcome Alexander Pentakoff. Hi, Alex. How are you? Good. Thank you, Daniel and Chris, for having me on, guys. It's a pleasure to be with you. You're yeah, pleasure, Samus. You're very, very welcome, mate. Um, I'm very, very looking forward to this one. Now, I've, um, I, I've looked at your bio and gone, yeah, we, we, we ain't gonna fit all this in one interview. <laughs> it usually happens. <laughs> yeah, because we, uh. We only have about 45 minutes, and this is going to take way longer than that. I talk so... a lot too, so it may be difficult to get through some of it. <laughs> um, so, I'm jump straight in there, mate, and go with uh, what started your interest in the cryptid world? I've just always been interested in mysteries uh, since I was young. I was told the story of the, the Yeti in the Himalayas, and I always grew up reading some of that stuff. I grew up in the 1990s, so it was the time when X-Files, the show was big. I grew up watching Monster Quest, some of the classics in search of. I read a lot of Lauren Coleman and many of the other cryptozoologists, and this was a time before social media, so I remember when the internet was first coming about, I would read a lot of blogs, so it was Lauren Coleman, Cryptomundo, some of these other sites, and uh, I've always been a fan of adventure. I was actually born in South Africa. My parents had went there after their uh, home country of Yugoslavia had fallen apart due to civil war and I was born in South Africa and I was only a few years old when I moved to the US so I don't remember much but I remember these stories my parents told me about biking on the border of Zambia with elephants and going to the Drakensberg mountains in search of 10,000 year old Bushman paintings in the mountains as my mom was pregnant with me so I grew up with all these stories my dad needing to nearly fight a baboon who was trying to steal me as a baby so there's all these stories I grew up with of Africa right it was just amazing so I've always wanted to kind of make my own adventures and and tell my own stories and have something like that to pass down to my family one day so I think my love of the outdoors and my love of mysteries have just combined into a general interest for cryptids like Bigfoot uh, and many of the other topics. It sounds like a very, very interesting life, mate. <laughs> An interesting start. It's if really, I can, yes. I, I tell you, Alex, I, I spent, I noticed from your biopic that you were in Polokwane and I spent a yes. couple of years there. Wow, I yeah. Can, I can tell you it's still just as wild, just as beautiful and just as amazing still today. So 
Well, it's funny because I was born, so Polokwane, the time I was born there, it was called Petersburg. And mm -hmm. it, it's been changed since. Um, but when I was born there, my, my family, actually, my parents were not living there. That was just the nearest kind of hospital. But my dad was actually a, a, a doctor at a Swiss missionary hospital in an area even further north of Polokwane called Louis Trehart. Uh, and we were out kind of in the bush. We lived in a house and we had all kinds of animals and monkeys on the roof and uh, lizards as pets that were living in the walls. That was kind of uh, the, the funny stories I, he I heard growing up. So it was very wild. Again, I, I have all these family photo albums looking through all the pictures and my parents talking about going to all the neighboring countries and uh, visiting Lesotho and all these other little places in South Africa. So uh, I've been back once since uh, when I was about it's 2014, 2015, so it was about 20 years since I left. So it was interesting to see South Africa and what a beautiful, gorgeous place it is. Well, of course, it has a lot of you know social problems, but mm -hmm. uh, it's somewhat dangerous. But we went on safari. We did a lot of the kind of typical stuff you do there. But uh, it's it's a fascinating place. So um, yeah, as, as I'm sure you know, having been there, yeah, it's, absolutely. it's yeah, unreal. Yeah. Um, so I'm really, really excited to know more about this <clears throat> excuse me um this um t topic because i've never had this on the podcast and uh my dad has said and uh and other viewers have said that we really really need to get this topic explained so without further ado could you tell could you tell us a bit about your work to do with the loch ness monster Yes, uh, Loch Ness Monster, as many uh, are fans of, of course, that topic. One of the most famous cryptids in the world, of course. Bigfoot probably is the only one above that, I would say, in terms of notoriety. Loch Ness has been around for a long time. I was always curious in the stories. So uh, I, when I actually got out of school in about 2015, uh, as I mentioned with family heritage in, in former Yugoslavia, I would spend time there growing up and visiting. So I went after I graduated spent some time over there and going from Croatia or Serbia to Scotland is not that far of a, a flight. It's only a few hours realistically and back then flights were pretty cheap so I went on a trip to Scotland of course with the intention of going to Loch Ness. So I spent a few days at Loch Ness and just did a little short documentary on it. I can't even watch it anymore because it's something that I did almost a, a decade ago at this point and it's uh, come a long way since then I'll put it that way. But I did this short film on Loch Ness. It was the, my first ever documentary on a cryptid, I always thought to myself, well, you know, I've spent my childhood reading about this stuff and interested in it. Why don't I try to add my own spin and did a short film on it? And uh, that kind of then propelled me into other directions, doing stuff on the Lake Champlain monster and, of course, Bigfoot, stuff that we have here in the U.S. But uh, I loved being able to go to Loch Ness. But I will say, after, uh, you know, a lot of people, it's kind of one of those things, don't meet your heroes sort of thing. Uh, after looking more into the Loch Ness, I actually became a little more skeptical of Loch Ness itself, believe it or not. Uh, I just thought, you know, because of the, the learning about the biology of the lake, how it's actually not very conducive for a lot of species of fish. There's, it's very deep, very, it's got a lot of that peat kind of build up. So um, I thought, you know, whatever this thing is, maybe it is extinct. I know there's some line of thinking on those lines. Uh, I know there's been recent sightings, but uh, it seems like it also is a little bit of an incentive for tourism there because uh, the monster is a big draw to Scotland in Loch Ness. And what I learned was in the years following that, being involved in looking at the Lake Champlain mystery here in the United States, uh, which is funny because that's virtually three hours from me, three hours from where I grew up. And I was always more interested in Loch Ness across the ocean, right? Not Lake Champlain, which was basically in my backyard. And I. I think the the, lock, the the Lake Champlain monster story is very underrated, especially when compared to Nessie. And I learned so much about uh, Lake Champlain. Lake Champlain itself is 123 miles long, almost 12 miles wide at the widest, 420 plus feet deep at the deepest. It's one of the most biodiverse lakes in North America, actually. It's one of, and one of the 20 largest, I believe. It's got almost 90 plus species of fish, extremely conducive, lots of very large sturgeon and other fish in the lake. Compared to Loch Ness, which I believe is only about, oh gosh, I haven't looked at the statistics in a while, but it's either, I think it's 12 or 24 miles long. I'm not sure which one it is, but it's a lot smaller yeah. than Lake Champlain. Maybe you know, Chris or Daniel. You're about right there, I think. Yeah, it's, um, it's yeah. yeah, 23 miles long from memory. 
Yeah. Right. It's it's not small by any means. It's only mm. about a few miles wide at the widest, but it's dwarfed by Lake Champlain. And I found that yeah. with Lake Champlain, because it's a it's a place that's bordering the U.S. states of Vermont and New York, and it juts into the province of Quebec and Canada a little bit, just the northern part. But people don't go there looking for the monster. It's not very well known. So the stories are, dare I say, a little more underground than perhaps Nessie, which is a little more on the nose. As I said, you go to a place like Loch Ness, and there's Nessie paraphernalia everywhere, and you can buy souvenirs, and there's museums, and nothing wrong with that at all. I love the idea of cryptid tourism. But there, that doesn't virtually exist at Lake Champlain in Vermont. I mean, there's a few shops that'll sell some souvenirs and some plaques, but the average person going to Lake Champlain might not even know there is a monster. They just go because it's a world-class fish, fishing destination, boating. Uh, people have lake houses there, summer camps. It's just a massive, massive lake, as I said, mm. almost 120, 24 miles long. I mean, it's, it's enormous. So from one end to the next, I mean, you're traveling almost three plus hours from north to south. And the southern point ends in Whitehall, New York which is kind of considered to be the East Coast Bigfoot capital because it's now very well known for the famous Bear Road incident in the 1970s involving multiple law enforcement agencies with some Sasquatch sightings. And that's right at the southern tip of the lake. So it's very interesting how it's an area where you have this convergence of folklore between Champ and Bigfoot-like stories on the East Coast. So yeah, Loch Ness, I still love it. It's still got a special place in my heart. But I think, you know, the the we've been looking at that lake for so long for over a century now or around a century at this point i should say i haven't gotten there quite yet in the 2030s i believe it'll be about a century um, but i think if something was maybe living there maybe it's extinct or maybe i mean i find it hard to believe it might be able to travel to and from the ocean um, and i know this probably sounds like a i'm a downer but you know this is my honest thoughts about having looked into it and i i don't try to sugarcoat what i felt about sort of the the experience but I mean, what a stunningly beautiful place Loch Ness is, with so much history and the mm, castle there. Yeah. Um, it's it's an incredible location. I can um, give you a little hope if you like, Alex. Sure. <laughs> so uh, I I followed pretty much the same line of thought when I went there. Um, the access into the ocean is is very narrow and and shallow. It would be some feet for some creature to to get Through in there. Inverness. Yeah, um, but I also. As we follow all these sort of things, we, we pick up bits of information. Sharks, great white sharks, they don't actually um, get pregnant until they're 36, 34, 36 years old. And then salmon return to their spawning ground to give birth. And as you kind of have this hope, maybe there's right. like a 40 year, 40 year cycle. And when you look at Loch Ness, the first report of it back in 694 AD, I'm sure somebody's gonna tell me I've got the wrong date. But it's a 14 year old, 1400 year old legend. Right. And this, um, so it gives me hope. It gives me some hope that there's, that it's well, there, there, you know. There is something too about these northern lakes. I mean, uh, Loch Ness is in a very similar latitude as Lake Champlain is, as is Lake Okanagan in British Columbia. A lot of these lakes have very, and that these northern lakes glacial lakes often many of these I mean, as Loch Ness and Lake Champlain were both the result of glaciers uh, mm -hmm. so it's very interesting and in, in how that kind of formed the landscape and receded connected to the ocean at one point um, even in Lake Champlain at the point now there is no way for anything to get in and out of the lake because there's elevation changes and there's many of the locks similar to what might be found in the Caledonian Canal perhaps going south from Loch Ness um, connecting it to the other locks but Lake Champlain, you exit down towards New York City in the Hudson River, but there's a lot of changes. And then up through the Richelieu River, it goes to the St. Lawrence Seaway. But Lake Champlain was part of the ocean as, as recently as 15 to 10,000 years ago, possibly. And we know that there are, there are beluga whales and other aquatic species of mammal and fish that lived in that lake. So the idea is maybe something managed to adapt or survive. I don't know, but I have heard some of the theories about that cyclical nature with a place like Loch Ness. I guess yeah. that's more of what, what my point was. It seemed like a resident population would be, oh, he's got the map. A resident population <laughs> might be difficult, right? But yeah, maybe there is a cyclical nature. I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't looked into it a whole lot since. I know people who do look into it. Uh, some people in the UK and uh, I've seen what Ken Gerhardt and others have done. I know there was recently a very big Nessie kind of search and hunt, which I think is great using some of the more modern technology, which is awesome. But uh, um, yeah, 
and I'll jump in right there and go, it was uh, eDNA, environmental yes. DNA that did right. that. Um, and uh, I don't know if you know about mine that I've I did. I've heard about um, it, yes, Mike, and I've heard it from others as well. I'll, yeah. um, and I'll go into that when we, when we go into Bigfoot later, but I think when when you come to Loch Ness and Bigfoot here in the UK if you go up to someone and say Loch Ness Monster they will know what you're talking about and right. they'll go oh I know this this and this when you go up to someone and say Bigfoot they'll laugh at you <laughs> and go number one that's a cartoon they'll say right and it it, it, it goes on like that but I my opinion is you it's good to have a healthy amount of um debunking your your number one your own stuff and other things that are around because if you don't debunk what what you find then you you, you're never kind of gonna push on with what and when you're saying about Loch Ness I think I think you're totally right on that where it's now I've been close to it, but I, I, I don't know. Um, and I, I, I don't know enough about it to kind of make an opinion. But I think I completely agree with you on that. Where it's, it's an I don't know now. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, but a very very interesting interesting story i'll say that yeah and, and you know like i said that's just my personal kind of takeaways and i haven't been very involved in the loch ness scene in a while i just know people who are like i said ken and people like steve feltham i follow his facebook page i got to meet him when i was there at loch ness and i did a short interview with him as well for for my short film so it's interesting to see what's going on and as, as we talked about it's one of the most popular cryptids really in the world so mm. Uh, and there's that famous term, the road to Loch Ness, which used by academia to kind of describe once you start heading down that path, it's usually not a good thing, especially if you're an academic, right? A scientist or a paleontologist or something along those lines. So uh, it's interesting, but lake monsters immensely fascinating. As I said, Lake Champlain become one of my favorite cryptids to look into just because of the, the history there and the interesting kind of underrated nature of that lake. Whether or not there is a creature or not, there has been just year, centuries of history. I mean, from alleged Native American legends of a snake-like creature in the water to uh, mm -hmm. the 1800s. I mean, you had a serpent craze in which people were seeing large serpent-like creatures in the lake. And even famous showman P.T. Barnum put up a very substantial bounty at the time for the capture of the Lake Champlain sea serpent, as they called it in the late 1800s, dead or alive. And there were hunting parties that went out to try and capture the beast. So, and it also with, there seems to be a cyclical nature in the sightings at Lake Champlain. Every 20, 30 years, there'll be an uptick. And then there's more of a media attention on it. And then you have things like the Sandra Mancy photo that came out in the early 1980s, that was from the late 1970s, that has never really been debunked. I know there's a lot of theories, and I, I actually was fortunate enough to be one of the last to speak to Sandra before she passed away a few years ago when I was working on my Champ series. And I don't think she hoaxed anything. I don't think her family was involved in creating a hoax of a please you sore like looking head sticking out of the water. Whether or not that was a real creature, I can't say, of course, but she seemed sincere in, in the fact that they didn't actually I mean, at the time, it, w it wasn't as easy as it is now. Now I can type in an AI program and create a lake monster image. Right back then, you actually had to physically put something into the water to, be, yeah. to hoax. So it was yeah. a little more impractical. But that photo, unlike the surgeon's photo, has never been alleged to be uh, you know, a deathbed confession that it was fake or anything like that. So, yeah, I think it's an interestingly, a very interesting story. I mean, recently I was in British Columbia, too, and, of course, there's Ogopogo. And there's, there are these stories around the world of of a strange lake monster. So I'm very fascinated because I think water is one of those places we just don't really understand. A lot of people have a visceral fear of water, especially deep, dark, murky water. Mm -hmm. You think of the movie Jaws, of course, and the imprint that's left on our psyche. People even in swimming pools get nervous with a shark coming at them. So I think it's, it's, it makes sense why we're interested in the things that are beneath the surface. We, we can't really 
that's that's not our world, right? We have to use yeah. all this specialized equipment just to get underwater and be able to survive. I mean, it'll kill us if we're under there without <laughs> any equipment or a submarine or anything. So it's it's very fascinating. I think that's why we have such an interest in the oceans and lakes and my- mysteries that come from the water. And mm. um, I think there's more to come because I we haven't actually got down to the bottom of the ocean yet. So there is still more to kind of discover, which might put more uh, more info. Um, we don't know. I'm going to jump right into the um, big, um, probably one of the biggest in the world, I'll say, is Bigfoot. Yes. <laughs> now, I've got, I got to say, it's my favourite one. Um, yeah. I, now, it's just, yeah. So why don't you go ahead and Tell us about your work on Bigfoot, bud. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm. I always say Champ is one of my favorite cryptids. The idea of it, right? But Bigfoot is my favorite to actually search for because it takes you to so many incredible places, right? So, as I mentioned, I've always been interested in mystery hominids, Bigfoot-like creatures, the Yeti, of course, in the Himalayas, those classic stories. But here in North America, having grown up uh, in in the United States, uh, we have such a rich history of strange sightings and just the amount of wilderness in this country and throughout you know canada as well it's just it's staggering it's actually hard for people to believe so i've always been interested in it here in the new england region um we have uh, quite a bit of stories here too especially in northern new hampshire and into maine so this area to put into perspective new hampshire is one of the smaller states but it's actually the second most forested by percentage of forests i mean it's almost almost 90 percent forested Uh, And number one most forested state in the U.S. is neighboring Maine, which is just our northern neighbor. Uh, And both states have just a a population just over a million, which is really not much for for the space. Uh, Maine is estimated to have up to 50 to 70,000 moose, which are the largest basically land animal in North America, um, aside from maybe some brown bears in Alaska. But Maine has the most amount of moose anywhere outside of Alaska in the U.S., right? So... 30,000 black bear. We have thousands of moose here in New Hampshire. So my point is these habitats support these large animals. I mean, you go to parts of Maine and you you have a very high chance of seeing more moose than deer even. And these are animals that can get up to 800 to 1,000 pounds. I mean, they're very (laughs) large animals. So we're in the northern Appalachians here. So this is the northern end of the Appalachian mountain chain, which goes all the way down into Georgia and kind of the foothills in Alabama and all throughout kind of the East Coast. And that was the former boundary of the U.S., right? When it was the original colonies and before early kind of statehood or early nationhood for the United States, that was the frontier. A lot of the credible sightings of Bigfoot tend to come from this kind of region, right? At least on the East Coast. So we have a history over here in the, in the New England area, Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, some parts of Massachusetts. But I, like I said, very high forestation, low population, very rugged terrain. We do have some mountains. I mean, they're nothing compared to maybe the mountains in Colorado, the Rockies or the Cascades out in the Pacific Northwest or certainly Alaska, but they're still very rugged. People are surprised how, uh, you know, Mount Washington in New Hampshire has some of the worst weather in the world. I mean, it's claimed hundreds of lives for people that are unprepared hiking and it's only a 6,000 plus foot mountain. Uh, but you have an alpine zone and it's uh, it's a very kind of rough terrain. I've hiked a lot of it. So I was always interested in the stories around here. But over the past few years, I've been lucky enough to uh, do a series called Bigfoot Beyond the Trail uh, with Small Town Monsters, which I've been able to travel virtually all across North America. I mean, we've been into Canada at this point. Uh, I I can't even remember off the top of my head the amount of locations, but everywhere from the Everglades in Florida, these subtropical kind of swamplands down south, to the Rocky Mountains, to the Pacific Northwest Rainforest, the Redwoods, Bluff Creek, uh, West Virginia, Alaska, British Columbia, all these places. So we've been able to go to these locations and explore them and spend some time there. And it just has been incredible. I mean, I drove up to Alaska from the East Coast this past summer, which was a 10,000 plus mile round trip journey. And I spent a month up in Alaska. And just that terrain along the way, when you're driving through Canada, you have the Alaska Highway, which goes through Northern British Columbia and the Yukon into Alaska. Virtually one of the most remote places on earth to this day. And you just have a highway cutting through and on either side of the highway, you could essentially disappear forever and never be seen again. 
with the amount of space that is still out there in the boreal forests that are, that are up there. So you see that and it kind of makes sense. Something could still be out there hiding in some of these remote areas or even on the edges of civilization that butt up against these remote areas because that's where a lot of the reports come from. Typically towns that are somewhat close to wilderness areas are right on the edge of civilization because you need, of course, a person to have a Sasquatch sighting, right? If they're just living in the middle of absolute mm. nowhere and people never go there, I mean, you're not going to know it. So we need people to have uh, reports in order to kind of get that sort of those anecdotal stories. So, so yeah, I've been very fortunate to be able to do this series and really look into cases that I personally want to. I mean, it's all my own interests. I've done stuff here locally with that because of course that's an area I focused on prior to that. But now since about 2021, our focus has been really around the country and around North America. So it's been a little overwhelming at times, but it's so fascinating because you get to go see places like Alaska and talk to researchers in those areas and witnesses and people, because I'm not gonna go to uh, the swamps of Louisiana and assume I know anything. I don't, I, I grew up here in the, in the, the, the temperate forests up here and the uh, deciduous forests of Northern New England, that has, that's a world away from Louisiana where you have alligators and uh, poisonous snakes and all these other creatures that I'm not used to dealing with. So I wanna to talk to locals. I wanna to talk to those Cajuns who live down there and people who have experiences with something they can't explain. So yeah, it's been incredible. It's been nothing short of amazing. And uh, the series has been, has had quite a bit of success online, which I'm of course very thankful for, but uh, I've gotten so many people that have been inspired to go out and just enjoy nature or, or go out on their own and try their own investigations. And I think that's great, especially in a day and age where, we're so surrounded by technology and the world is somewhat getting smaller in the sense that everything is getting urban and suburban. I think it's great that people are still trying to connect with nature. I think it's a good thing to try to encourage that because that's something I think we're losing in a lot of ways. And I can definitely say, Alex, is that is my goal. And I, I don't know if you know, but I put on a uh, convention I'd say and the secondary meaning is to get children out in into the forest out looking and out just just away from TV and I, uh, I, I would say during the summer I was out probably every weekend um, and and we were out in in the forest and we were and it's been very very lovely i'll say that um confusing and and unknown i'll say that um <laughs> um but it's been amazing um i would like to get your opinion on what on what you think of um my finding um do you know a decent amount about what we I wouldn't say a decent. I would say I've just kind of heard a little bit through the grapevine through Mike Ann and uh, so those folks. It was God about 10, 11 weeks ago now, where we first found. Um, thank you. Um, we found um, a eighteen-inch in indentation, and when you come across an eighteen-inch indentation. I, what do you do um, with three <laughs> <Pretty> scan it? <laughs> um, we casted it, um, and we took some eDNA. That's awesome. And surprisingly, it came back as old world monkey and great a. <laughs> I and since then we found bones, we found scats that looks like bear. And we have no predators here at all known. I'll say that. Um, and we found carcasses, structures. What? What? What are your thoughts on that here in the UK? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, I'm I'm typically a little skeptical of UK kind of Bigfoot stories, um, if if it's a strictly kind of flesh and blood creature, because of course I would think that. It would make sense in a more in a, in a place like North America or maybe other parts of the world in Asia and whatnot. Um, obviously, some people are more on the paranormal side of things than you don't know. I mean, that, I guess the possibilities are endless at that point. 
Um, I know the UK has a big, I don't want to say problem, but uh, issue with escaped animals and possible sort of illicit trade with exotic animals. I, that's something with the big cat topic that I've heard quite a bit about the Black Beast of Exmoor and other places where obviously the UK is not supposed to have Black Panther or big cat like creatures, right? They're not native to the land, yet people are reporting we will, we will de We are definitely going to touch on that very, very shortly. Right. So it's interesting because from what I understand, and I've spent a little bit of time in the UK, but never really in the wilderness. You know, I've been to Oxford and London and that sort of thing and Scotland, of course. Um, so I haven't spent a lot of time. I've just seen some of the wild places in Scotland. Um, but there does seem to be a good amount of forest land. I've heard of the stories of the, the gray man of Ben McDewey up there which I think is some kind mm -hmm. of a light phenomena where in the fog, your own shadow almost looks like something following you, which I find really interesting kind of a folklore around that. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it, honestly. Um, and I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I don't pretend to know eDNA stuff. Whenever I get anything remotely interesting, whether it's hair samples or anything like that, I make sure to talk to people, oftentimes some that, you know, Amy Boo might be able to help me connect with, people who, who know what they're doing. And I've, I've tried to do some eDNA stuff on my own that way. So I don't know how to interpret any of that kind of stuff. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm decent in the woods enough just in terms of the outdoorsman aspect, tracking and that sort of stuff, but I'm, I'm a, not a scientist by any means, so I don't know how I'd be able to interpret results like that. I, I know eDNA is still a very complicated topic. I know even just a few years ago, some of the stuff that sounds like what you were doing where you were sampling directly from, you know, footprint, that wasn't even really available, at least to just a common person, even a few years ago. Um, you know, we tried to focus on water eDNA, which I think is an, another avenue that a lot of people look at, collecting a water sample that could contain certain bacteria or fecal samples or something that shows there's creatures in the environment, as we talked about with Loch Ness. That would have been, you know, one way to kind of see, hey, what, what is living in this lake? So. Um, I don't know a whole lot about it, obviously. So I, you know, and I, I genuinely can't, you know, interpret some of that stuff as, as well as maybe a scientist would. So I'd have to say, um, if I knew what I was talking about, I, I'd probably get, be able to give you a better answer. If that's, that's sort of a cop out, I guess, but um, I don't well, know what to make of it, you know? Well, Alex, join the club. None of us. <laughs> right. None of and, us. No. And I think that's great. You know, as long as we can admit like, hey, this is strange, but we don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's great to talk with those people that do have those skill sets, of course. And I, and I love. I can't. I, sorry, I can't confirm this yet, but I'm getting my info from Dr. Jeffrey Maldrum to see what yeah. he thinks. See, that's great. That's what I love about this kind of topic is being able to connect with those people that bring so many different skill sets or have credentials behind them just to be yeah. able to help out. I mean, you could you could be not, let's say you're not looking at Bigfoot, but you're just trying to figure out what attacked your horse on your property, right? Maybe it was a wolf mm -hmm. or something. You live in Montana, it was a mountain lion. You're probably going to be talking to those sorts of people anyway. You're not, you know, you're not going to be, you know, assuming you know how to interpret that. So I think being able to pass that off to the right people is a, is a great way to mm. uh, just gain a little bit of knowledge about that yeah yeah and it's it's definitely interesting yeah interesting. it's fascinating i mean yeah. and i don't know what old world monkey i mean i'm assuming that's non-south american monkeys that which would be the new world right which would be things like howler monkeys because we're not supposed to have any apes or monkeys in north america right but south america does south and central america so i would assume old world is probably anything that's not new world at least i know again, that my, <laughs> i know my... that we we did have a population of old world monkey i know that um interesting but ages ago i mean right I, that would have been a long time ago. and apart from us there are no primates in 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 the uk um or at least there shouldn't no, be as we're told right shouldn't be, yeah. shouldn't <laughs> be no and um yeah, and it's just really odd. And the, all the researchers here in the UK, a lot of the researchers in America, have no clue what this is. No clue. And I've not said it's Bigfoot yet. I've not said it's anything yet. Sure. And I won't until I know a definitive answer. 
and in some way I want it to kind of be debunked really because then you've got you know what it is and also what is causing old world monkey DNA here in in the UK it's and that could be potentially a new discovery in met in in many different ways Um, it's just very very odd that came in uh, an 18 inch footprint with toe indentations near uh, something that looks like basket and bones and structures that's weird that's um, strange yeah i mean yeah, i think it's a great I, attitude you have though about you know you, a lot of people unfortunately when they do get some kind of alleged evidence right they uh, and i've seen this time and time again of being involved in this topic, people get emotionally attached to their findings, right? Which means that you you can't be unbiased when you're dealing with it. People often get defensive when they're asked tough questions, but I always say, you know, if you have some alleged evidence, it should be able to withstand the scrutiny and you should be able to and be open to presenting it to a variety of people. Say, hey, here, please debunk it. Um, You know, I've always said that with some of the stuff I've found and I've been happy to know, know we found hair samples that turned out to be raccoon. I'm totally fine with that. You know, it's all in the right context, right? Oh, it was found in an area with potential Bigfoot activity. It was high up in a fence, so we think maybe this thing got nicked by hair. It turns out to be a raccoon. So as long as you're open to that and, you know, willing to have that dialogue, I think that's great. And talk to people that are skeptical and people that, uh, you know, just are not attached to the evidence because you're getting a, even if it's a friend or somebody that's maybe got a little bit more of an objective, just say, hey, you know, take a look at this for me. This. What do you think of this? Just don't sugarcoat it. Tell me what you think. You know, there's yeah. no need to um, to kind of uh, just because you're my friend. I want you to kind of you know this is what I really think, and I think that's great. Fortunately, a lot of people can't take that the right way, but I think it's it's great to to want to debunk your own work because once you um, debunk things and work away from the possibilities, you can narrow down what it might might or might not be. And when you open a package when it comes that says Bigfoot EDNA from the SGS, you go, um, okay, um, have you, and, and the scientists there, now obviously scientists are scientists and they will go by what science is, and this who did the EDNA when, holy crap, the kid may have, uh, may have actually done it. And for a scientist to actually say that, it could potentially go: Is there something else that that we're that we're missing? Um, but it's a very, very, very interesting find. I'll say that. Definitely, yeah. I'd say keep uh, keep your um, you know arms open for other interpretations and and any kind of stuff. And just like you said, talking to people like Meldrum and others as well, who just. Are involved and that's what they do you know they're trained in that scientifically trained i think it's great to to talk with those people amazing so now i'm oh, chris did you want to say something i, I was gonna ask alex what? still on the bigfoot thing the uh famous tree structure the famous one that everybody goes to you guys went there in the first episode you did and I'm not sure exactly where it is, to be honest. Which one? Um, it's just off the trail. I think there may have been a burnout caravan. It may have been when you were there or Justin Cherpaninsky went there. Um, and they got the big tree structure up on the side of the hill. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't recall. I mean, we found alleged structures, but I don't know if it's a specific one. Um, uh, okay. Um, what a, when you're actually in there looking at, these tree structures, big ones, something that's beyond the capability of of your average human being. What kind of um, you get any sort of uh, primeval feelings inside? Any raised, elevated heartbeat? Anything that makes you <laughs> something from our prehistory that wakes up inside um, makes you start looking over your shoulder a bit more or more alert. Yeah, I've not. I've never had that happen specifically around tree structures. There's been a few times out in the woods where you get that really stereotypical 
I feel like I'm being washed feeling. That's really kind mm -hmm. of unusual um, in an area here in New Hampshire where there's been kind of a history of alleged Bigfoot activity. I was out there once with a friend one night, and this is an area I would go to pretty frequently. It was sort of a regular kind of area I would visit and kind of do amateur research and just try out different experiments and that sort of thing. But we were out there one night, and this was probably the most tangible I've ever felt this feeling. It's just so weird. We found this straight, there's this strange structure thing. I don't know what it is. I mean, it's just a bunch of weird trees. And I'm not saying it's anything related to Bigfoot or, or otherwise. It could just be random, um, random blowdown kind of thing. Here in New England, we get really harsh winters. So snow load and, and bears can cr climb into saplings and snap them in weird ways. So again, I'm pretty skeptical about a lot of the structure stuff, but we find this kind of structure. We, I've known about it. We're hiking around at night and we start walking back and I get this, again, the most tangible I've ever felt the feeling of this tingling, you're being watched. And, and I'm thinking that in my head, man, it feels like I'm being watched. And my friend walking next to me, same exact moment, just verbally says, dude, I think we're being watched. And I turned to him and I said, what are you talking about? Like, how did you, re did you just read my mind? I mean, I, my mind was blown, right? I couldn't believe it. And he said, no, I just have this weird feeling. I said, I have the same exact feeling, but you just, you just expressed verbally what I was thinking. I mean, that is one of those, how do you explain that kind of thing? Maybe that is going back to what you said, Chris, these sort of primeval instincts we have. Maybe if there's a predator or something in the area that we just have this kind of feeling. I mean... Uh, recently I talked to Les Stroud, Survivor Man, and he talks about being watched, you know, in the wilderness, you're always being watched, right? Yeah. Whether it's small bugs watching you, usually you're not going to kind of acknowledge that or feel that, but you could be watched by a moose or a mountain lion or, or a distant mountain goat or something, a bear, and you would have no idea. We're probably being watched a lot of the times in the woods and we have no idea, right? Mm -hmm. But when you feel it so tangibly, that's what's really interesting. So never had that specifically with structures, but that was a really defining moment. But the, the only structures that I've seen or that I've kind of been to the area of that I found somewhat fascinating were what the Olympic Project has discovered in the uh, so-called nest site in the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State. Uh, we went out there in 2021 and we were the first to ever really go out there and film and stay overnight in those areas where they discovered almost 26 of these weird kind of gorilla looking ground nests. I mean, I, I don't think anyone's ever made the claim that they're specifically of, of those guys from the Olympic Project. They are Bigfoot nests, but they find them really interesting. That was an area that, you know, when we were there, the nests were somewhat deteriorated, but you could kind of see the general area. And it just thought, I thought to myself, this is really unusual. I mean, this area is so far off the beaten path. None of the known animals have a very, uh, you know, they're not known to exhibit this kind of behavior in that specific region very much, uh, or at least to what I know. So I found that pretty interesting, but I don't, I don't know if I would consider that in the same sort of realm as some of the structures that a lot of other people claim here in North America. Unfortunately, with the Bigfoot topic, a lot of what you see online, I find very hard to believe. People, you know, they make things up, people, wishful thinking. There's, we don't have a lot of facts, so a lot of people will make stuff up, unfortunately. But I've found that um, you know, as we become more disconnected from nature, people mistake common things for maybe a structure. But one example I'll give is, I used to do some survival training and naturalism training, and we would build uh, shelters. So we would build debris shelters where you basically are taking a tree with a Y formation and putting a stick going uh, kind of right through that Y to the ground and adding ribs to the side, basically lining it with sticks on either side and then covering it with debris. So that's an emergency shelter you can just crawl into one person. We used to do all sorts of shelters like that, right? And people go and practice their bushcraft and leave it in the woods. I've been shown pictures before of people showing me deteriorated debris shelters and even lean-tos and teepees that people have made and say, oh, this is definitely Bigfoot. I said, you know, well, I mean, I, I think it's most likely people. And then I, I look up that specific, to this instance, it was a state park or state forest. And I looked it up and you could actually go to the website of that state forest and sign up for bushcrafting classes where some instructor presumably would take you out into the woods and you build these structures. People don't often tear them down. They just leave them there. So I tell this person, hey, this is, you know, this is in the park. And they say, well, this was way off the trail. There's no way people would have gotten to it. Well, where do you think people are building debris shelters, right? They're not building somewhere right on the trail. So, you know, people will believe what they want is what I found. But um, 
I think I, I'm kind of uh, I'm skeptical, skeptically minded, but I'm also tough to please in terms of alleged evidence and that sort of thing. It has to be very obvious for me um, in terms of alleged visual evidence and that kind of thing. So um, the structure thing, I'm, it's a hard sell for me, at least in some instances. I've seen stuff, as I mentioned, that's a little weird, uh, like that Olympic Project stuff and some other kind of weird structures that would pop up. But I can't say with a certainty what made them because I didn't see what built them, if it was a person or a bear or weather related. I really, I don't know, I, I typically tend to be pretty, um, you know, skeptical and, and don't like giving definitive answers when I really have no way of establishing how it could have happened. And I'll, and I'll jump in there and go, I completely agree with you there. And the one of the issues that I that I face here in the UK with 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 kind of researching here is people tend to build st structures and that's difficult but you can kind of def um, structures from normal people to then ones that are out of place and one of the joys that we stand here is number one not many, not many people know about Bigfoot and number two we don't have bears here which means I I, I will be fine I'm not gonna I'm not going to be killed by a bear which I love <laughs> um, and um, there was one structure which I found and it was 15 feet in the air now I go now, what are the chances of someone carrying a, la a ladder up, uh, up a hill, getting it all the way through as far as it's about a half hour to, to the spot, up a tree? I go, could happen. Right. Very, a lot of dedication. It's, it, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. just, it, it would take a lot of work to kind of do that. I'm like, it... It, it could tip people away. I haven't put all my hopes and dreams into in, in into structures um, because uh, of the reason you just said. And but yeah, I, I will completely agree there with with I, I find it hard to believe with some structures yeah. where where it's like I go no it's it, you can see the cut marks you can see and right. i think some people do it for the joy of going oh i found a bit a bigfoot tree structure right right it's it, again it's so hard to say because like a common one that people here will or people will post online about is a, a bent over tree or just a a small sapling that's been snapped right maybe at mm. eight foot nine foot height right oh that's well out of the range of human i've seen some weird ones right but there's, there is video evidence, and I've seen this, of bears. You know, you've got a three, 400 pound black bear. That's a big boy climbing into a small sapling that's maybe this wide around. As he gets, as he gets eight or nine feet up, guess what's gonna happen? It snaps. I've seen very funny footage of bears going up there. I mean, even one I think was a, a, a mother, you know, getting her cubs as they were up in the, up in the tree and it snapped as she went up. So somebody maybe comes across that in the woods and says, oh my God, this is eight, nine feet up, right? Unless we saw what happened, it's very hard to establish that. But that, again, that being said, I have found some, some strange structures that I have hard time explaining, but that doesn't mean they couldn't have been, they can't be explained, I should say. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting topic um, but I tend to think if something is like Bigfoot, if it is some sort of elusive creature, I don't imagine it would be leaving multiple structures in very popular state parks, you know, as some people have, have assumed, right, where a lot of people go. I mean, they've got even people in suburban and semi-urban areas claiming that creatures are coming in building structures. I mean, once you kind of go down that rabbit hole, you can get lost. Uh, people making crazy claims but uh yeah i think it's interesting to look at and especially when you have stuff like those alleged nests at the olympic project if that indeed is even bigfoot which we don't know but if that is that's very intriguing because that's a sort of behavior that maybe you could try to find in another area too so um my next question is going to be uh possibly an easy one 
but I don't know. Um, it's probably the highlight of Bigfoot. Um, what is your opinion on the Patterson Gimlin film? Ah, very interesting. Yeah, I, you know, it's a, it's a very fascinating piece of footage, of course. I tend to lean towards it being real. A certain day, you ask me which day, and um, it just seems... How should I put it? You know, before I, I went to the Patterson Gimlin site about two years ago, we actually slept in the very place where Patty had walked in Bluff Creek in Northern California. Well, Before then, you know, I was always, I thought it was very intriguing. There were points where I uh, believed wholeheartedly, points where I didn't. But I think once you go there, it, it kind of paints the scene a little bit. What, what I still don't understand is why, so Bluff Creek to this day is very hard to get to. You drive a few hours up into the mountains and it's not, it's not right off the beaten path. You're already in a very remote region of Northern California. Why these guys, if it is a hoax, which I don't know if it is or not, but why would they go so far, so deep into the wilderness to do this level of a hoax when they could have gone a mile or two outside of the town of Willow Creek, you know, hiked a mile into the woods, much closer to the road, much closer to civilization, and filmed it, and you would have had almost a very similar environment, right? Nobody would, it would have been extremely similar in terms of habitat. Why go through all the extra trouble? I mean, I don't know, maybe the, maybe dedication, I can't speak to that, of course, but going there really kind of illustrated to me, this place is, I mean, if there were a place for something like this to be, Bluff Creek to this day is very, very uh, conducive habitat with different species and everything there. So uh, something also, a few years ago, there was a, uh, a show, and generally I'm not a huge fan of some of the Bigfoot content you see on TV. I think there's a lot of exaggeration and fakery going on. But there was a program, Truth is Out There, and they did a, a kind of composite of the Patterson Gimel film. And, and the people who were involved, I found to be somewhat trustworthy. So Dr. Jeff Meldrum, of course, somebody who's well-known. Bill, Bill Munz. Yes, who's done probably some of the most work, and somebody I actually met personally that I that I think is not really involved very much in the Bigfoot topic, but they specialized their skill set. It was uh, Isaac Tian, and I met him with the Olympic Project. He was one. Of, he was the one that put together using different copies of the Patterson Gimlin film. So in the show, you have the three of those guys, and all they did was put together using different copies of the footage, a sort of composite using all these copies of that footage, and it showed movement of of body parts. I mean, around the breasts and certain things that were just, I had never seen it in that light before in terms of the movement and some of the, the leg muscle kind of thing, if that is indeed what we're looking at, that I thought, I mean, this would have been so difficult to fake in the 1960s. I mean, they still can't create that level of suit today. I mean, yes, you can create incredible looking costumes nowadays, but this was 1967. In that remote of a location, to have that much movement, it really, I mean, it leans me towards it being real, uh, but I think whatever, if it's real or not, it doesn't make a difference at this point because, unfortunately, Patterson Gimlin film, it's not going to be enough to prove Bigfoot. We need, we're going to need more hard evidence or multiple instances like the Patterson Gimlin film where you have footage. So I think it's never going to be proven or disproven because there's always going to be people on either side, right? Um, I think it's extremely fascinating. It's very culturally influential. I mean, all the depictions of Bigfoot have that sort of that famous pose, right? And it's very influenced by that film. But it's either one of the best hoaxes of all time, or it is absolutely a uh, really good piece of footage. But you know, my personal opinion aside, I don't think it's going to make a difference. It hasn't. It's been almost you know, 60, 70 years at this point, so we're still talking about it. So I don't think it's going to change the outcome, but it is definitely interesting. If Bigfoot were to be proven tomorrow, I think people would be able to look at the Patterson Gimlin film and say, well, it, it, it does show you know, what is likely a and female sex. One point that really got me on side. Now I'm, now, I'm autistic. Now it's hard to get me on a mind where I go... Yeah, yeah, that's real. I, I, I have to... I'm not closed my but I have to kind of be on one straight line. And the thing that got me was the foot. So when when, when the toes went down and the I go... Movement. Yeah. yeah. I know I exactly go, what you're talking about. I go... So if you're looking at the tiniest details like that and you go... It's like the back and neck. You got the fur that... I, I go... Yeah, I go now. Chris loves the PG film. I go. Is it? 
on my opinion, it's real. I go, I think there's been enough people look into it and enough small details to go, I I can't say for sure. Right. But you know what's interesting too? Something that you should try to look for, and I, it's very hard to find actually. There is, most people have seen the footage, right? The famous uh, frame where it walks through and it kind of goes past that log. People have seen that plenty. Very few people have actually seen the, the ending parts of the footage where there's almost a straight on view, especially if stabilized, of Patty walking away. Uh, as it, and I've walked the path I was shown by Rowdy Kelly, member of the Bluff Creek Project, who then they rediscovered the film site there, I think in 2012 or so. And they were able to find these old stumps and things that are still present. But he took me the path where Patty allegedly walked and went across the creek there, Bluff Creek. So the, in the last frames of the footage that was shot, you see her walking away and how wide of a creature it is. If it is a creature or whatever it is, extremely wide and fluid the movements and even possibility of some of the hair being uh, like when a cat or, or a dog gets uh, irritated. I don't remember the term, it's razorback or something like that. They get a little bit of like the goosebumps kind of, you know, their hair jumps up. It look, maybe some of that on there. I mean, that could be just completely uh, artifacts added from all the different film copies. But look for that, those ending frames because that is rarely ever looked at. The, the mm-hmm. walking way and it's incredible how wide this thing was, whatever it was. So uh, it, it's an extremely fascinating footage and so many people have, have looked into it. And people like Bill Munns have done so much great work on it. Um, and it's hard to argue with some of the stuff. They, I even have a friend down in Florida who is a camera guy, and he had a lot of interesting kind of uh, notes about, well, you know, why is it that Roger knew about the focus? You know, he had practiced. He must have practiced. And there was all these kind of red flags he had in his mind, and he got to talk to Bill Mons about it. But so many people have looked at that, that have that sort of professional skill set, that maybe they work with cameras or they, they know what they're talking about, costume people, all this sort of stuff. And there, there's a variety of opinions, of course, but I think if you're more informed about the circumstances around it, you can uh, you know, kind of look at that and, and sort of judge for yourself. But uh, it's it's supremely fascinating. And it, what a beautiful place it is too. And we experienced some um, weird activity ourselves at Bluff Creek, so. Did you? Well, yeah, we had some, wow. you know, what I would consider, and you know, this is, I can't verify or confirm this, of course, possible whoop that I heard while we were staying at the infamous Laos camp, which is one of the old logging camps that was used originally by Tom Slick in the Bigfoot expedition in the late 1950s after the tracks were found there with John Green and, and others uh, being involved in that expedition. We heard this kind of strange whoop-like noise after my friend's dog was acting very strangely and the most scared I've ever seen a dog and uh, it was just a whole kind of it's in one of our videos Bigfoot of Bluff Creek the whole incident because it was just sort of it was sort of unusual I thought it was a human making the whoop but I was able to confirm it wasn't anyone at camp and none of the dogs or anything that were there so it was a very unusual kind of thing and again I can't I can't verify that but uh, it was just sort of suspicious we'll put it that way that amongst um, some other things, but it's it's a beautiful place. I mean, it's still rugged, raw wilderness out there in Bluff Creek. And one last thing I'll say about the part the Patterson Gimlin film tape is not many people back then, if it if it was a hoax, would think about putting breasts on the suit. Now that that's something that I've that I've actually spoken to Bill Munns about, and yeah. when yeah it's something that doesn't really come up and Very strange. It's, it's just something called the pot that possibly and for her size to be around about six foot point something uh six six foot seven something i i'm like or yeah it's just something yeah cliff barrett really. has a has an interesting um display in his museum in Oregon, the North American Bigfoot Center, where they took some of the copies of the casts of Patty and tried to make an estimation of how big the creature would have been by taking that foot, you know, trying to kind of measure it. And they also come around six, three, six something, I don't remember exactly, but playing devil's advocate, I will say Roger Patterson, in his book that he wrote previously to the, in the previous years to Patty, did draw a Sasquatch with, with breasts. 
but apparently he was referring to a very famous sighting that I actually recently just researched from the, uh, I believe it was the late 1950s or early 1950s, maybe it was 1951. It was the William Rowe encounter, which happened in uh, the, the Rocky Mountains of British Columbia, which is a very well-known encounter in which a hunter had a long duration kind of observation of a female Sasquatch apparently eating the way he described it. And what I found interesting was while I was in British Columbia, I interviewed a researcher who talked, um, you know, to Dr. John Vinternagel, who talked about the William Rowe encounter and uh, had actually met a biologist who used to work with this William Rowe guy and said, oh, wow, we used to, as biologists, we would listen to observations from William Rowe talking about prairie antelope in Alberta and in, in other parts of Canada. And they said, hey, we would always look forward to his descriptions because they were always so incredibly detailed and spot on in terms of what the animals were doing and their behavioral patterns. So to think this guy would have made up this really long duration Bigfoot encounter to the detail he did is interesting. And, and supposedly Patterson referenced that William Rose sighting in one of his books. Now, again, that being said, could be a coincidence, right? But the, the way that creature looks, especially in some of those composites, I mean, the movement of, of those muscles in the breast, it just, I don't know how they would have done it in 1967. I think that in itself is a mystery unto itself. How create such a suit that has, still has not been replicated to that level, right? People have tried, yeah. but um, yeah. I, it's, it's, yeah, very, it's very interesting. You know, there's been attempts that have failed miserably. I mean, I, it's just very, very interesting. So something... Something happened there. I don't know what it is, but so there's a, there's a few things that um, that you've just said, Alex. Uh, one thing that this Patty is the same sort of height as me, and when I watch this video, you get the impression of something a lot heavier and bigger and longer strides than me. You see the, the rate at which she goes past the, the rocks, which you've got a feeling of some sort of idea of the size, yeah. or a rough idea. So. Uh, as Daniel said, when they digitized the footage and you can see the hackles going up, and you called it the Razorback or, yeah, I mean, that, that nailed it for me. And then what you've just said there, that's a long way to carry a fake suit. Yeah, a I'm horseback nonetheless. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. again, the area is so rugged and it would have been, I mean, it's still as rugged as it hasn't changed much. I mean, realistically, it would have been a little more logged at the time because this was you know within 10 years of when the logging first started when they first started punching roads into this wilderness so now they don't log out there as much they still do there was a recent forest fire a couple months ago that almost took out the whole patterson gimlin site uh big forest fires all through northern california but the area is so wild again you could have had the same visual effect if you had just gone a couple miles outside of town yeah. I don't, you know, the, the the location itself, obviously, aside from the history there, you could have picked a much easier place to go to. Uh, you know, if they, if, you know, if what the circumstances around that were true, and I think a lot of people that were involved at the time confirmed that, yes, they were actually at Bluff Creek. They, they did come out with the footage to get it processed, but they were actually there. And we know that are because those guys that rediscovered the film site after it was lost, they were able to look at it. And I was shown this with my own eyes, which is incredible. They have stumps and trees that are still there from the footage. And it's been a long time, obviously 60 plus years. So entire trees have grown within where that footage was taken. So uh, in the, I believe it was 1963 or 64, there was a big flood that took out a lot of Northern California. That's why it created that environment where Patty walked with that sort of silt that was deposited from the flood and it cleared a lot of the stuff that was there. But so in, in, in where that happened, a lot has grown in. But those guys are able to show me multiple points that are exactly the same, you know, stumps that are still rotting, trees that are still there. You know, they have one called the pool cube, one called Smiley, and it's a stump that almost looks like it has a smile on it. It's so interesting. So it, it confirms that that is absolutely the place where the footage was taken, you know? So it's, you can't dispute that because that's where it happened. Obviously the dispute is as to what it was, but um, yeah, I mean it's a beautiful area. I would I would love to go back to Buff Creek. I have friends that go every year. It's kind of their yearly uh, journey to the mountains, and that area has produced a lot of sightings and a lot of stories and other weird noises. Uh, we've had our our kind of encounter. My friend recorded a strange 
scream out there the year prior to us going so there's there's a history of stuff out there whatever's going on I, don't, I can't claim to know what it is but uh, it's, it's a beautiful place to get out to regardless and I, I yeah it, it's probably one of the biggest mi- mysteries in encrypted in cryptozoology and it's probably one of the biggest um, now Alex, we've been talking for an hour and five minutes, and Already? it's gone so fast. Honestly, honestly, we're just talking I, about Loch Ness five minutes ago. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so, um, I we are definitely going to have to do another interview at, at some point. I've got seven questions that we still haven't answered. <laughs> we've uh, we've answered three questions on my sheet. Honestly, awesome. honestly, we, yeah. we 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 haven't. Uh, answered a lot of them but... you haven't mentioned my sheet yet yeah <laughs> I haven't even started them. <laughs> no, um, we'll definitely have to I mean the big cat topic of course is so oh, fascinating yeah. so we'll have yeah. to have to get on that too um, but, th- but thank you so much Alex and thank you to everyone who has watched and I I'm sure Alex will be happy to answer any of your questions if you just shove it in the comments and um, uh, and I'm sure he'll answer. But thank you so much to Alex and Chris. Um, thank you. And, and guys, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube and our podcast. Um, and this podcast should be out very, very soon. But thank you from all of us and keep searching and stay mythical. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you for listening to the Mythical Legends podcast. For more information, check out our Facebook group. The truth is out there.